0: Well, it is such a pleasure for me to be here this morning for so many reasons. When Jamie asked me about this first, it was a no-brainer. I just love the idea of just ushering in the New Year by spending the last Sunday of the old year preaching, i just love to do that that's the central calling and labor of my life and i've continued to do that and it's such a pleasure to be with god's people uh, to be led in such powerful songs of worship that immediately direct our attention upward just been a real blessing already so thank you so much and then of course when jamie talked to me about the the subject matter and the purpose uh, that was another reason for that because we had the privilege at rexel for almost all of the 36 years that I was there to have a week of prayer. And since about 1992 on till 2016, the first week of every year was dedicated to corporate prayer like this. So that's something that's been a personal passion of mine as well. And so all of those things just blended together so beautifully. So I'm just so thankful for the privilege of being here today. Many, many Christmases ago, we, uh, our larger family had gathered together for a few days as we used to do regularly. Some of the older kids, I stumbled into the rec room of the home that we were in, and they were watching this movie. And so I joined them. I always like to know what they're watching, and it was always good for dialogue, if nothing else. And happened to be this movie called The Hunt for Red October. Uh, I haven't read the novel and never and, and I saw the movie a long time ago and only but I saw most of it to catch the main storyline. If you watch the movie recently or read the book you'll probably pick out some errors and details but that's okay, the big story I think I have it right. It's a story about a Russian, senior Russian naval officer who is actually defecting to the United States and he's on a submarine. Now the Russians find out about it and they want to first stop it. So they not only try to go after him themselves, they also tell the United States, their counterpart, that this guy is actually a renegade who is coming and he's actually going to attack you. So they wanted to get him from both sides. Anyway, as the the movie continues, there happens to be a relatively low-ranking officer in the U.S. Navy who knew this Russian guy from way back when they were trained together and he said, I know him too well. He's not he's not coming to attack us, he's probably coming to defect, to come over to our site, which of course would be a plus, but nobody in the naval hierarchy would believe him. Finally, he will manage to succeed in convincing one uh, vice-admiral, I think it was, and somehow, and I forget the details at this point, they managed to get themselves dropped onto this submarine where this guy is coming in, and they get into the submarine, and they have start having conversations, he introduces this other guy to him, but all of a sudden, they get a warning signal saying, okay, the Russians have tracked them down and they're firing a torpedo at us. And this fellow, young fellow, happened to be sitting in the driver's seat as it were, whatever a driver's seat in the submarine looks like. And he had his own naval commander who's senior ranking officer on one side, and he had this Russian guy on the other side. And so then his senior naval officer was saying, okay, the submarine is coming, our only hope is to turn the sub around and outrun it, go as fast as you can. The Russian said, don't do it, there's only one way you're going to escape, turn the submarine directly in the path of the torpedo and go full speed ahead towards it. That sounded like a suicide mission, right? So here was this young fellow, absolutely petrified, not knowing what to do, paralyzed I should say. His own commander was saying, turn it around and run, outrun this submarine, this guy, And he was the only person who seemed to think he was actually defecting, was saying, no, don't do it. Finally, when he had to choose, he chose what this this Russian guy did. He turned the submarine towards the oncoming torpedo, opened the throttle and we were full speed ahead. So started the countdown, 10 seconds to contact, 9 seconds to contact, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, contact! And the torpedo harmlessly glanced off the side of the submarine. And the Russian said, I designed those torpedoes. They are armed in such a way that from the time they are fired, they take a certain amount of time before they can deploy. Your only hope was to maintain, get the contact before that time period expired. If you had turned it around to run away, you would have been destroyed. Why am I telling you this story? What does this have to do with the week of prayer? Simply this. When it comes to prayer, there are all kinds of voices that are on one side of us lined up saying, especially the enemy voices, because he does not want this to happen in your church. Questions, doubts, is this worth it? Does it make any difference? There are theological questions. Uh, what about unanswered prayer? There are philosophical questions. If God is sovereign, why should we even bother to pray? He's going to do what he wants to anyway. There are practical questions. I can't, I don't know how. Just, there's no shortage of voices that are going to be telling you it's not important it's not going to make any difference what happens in 2024 in this church will be exactly the same as if you never did this because you can't prove it right you can't live your life twice over in 2024 one with a week of prayer and one without a week of prayer you can't live it that way on the other side though you have the testimony of God's word telling you something very different and I want to be the voice on the other side because I have one goal today See, when, when we are confused, when there's lots of voices trying to confuse us, like this guy was only in case he just had two voices, and it's a life and death issue. Sometimes, what, we ta- what it takes and what we need is the power of a clear command from someone in authority who knows the enemy and whom we trust. That's what happened to this young man. He didn't know what to do, but he trusted this guy, and it was a clear command, and he did it, he was saved. When it comes to prayer, it's exactly the same thing. There may be lots of questions, lots of comments, and the enemy will work overtime to plant you, and he's saying. and I want to deliver to you a clear command from a commanding officer who knows the army, who knows the weapons, and he says to pray. This entire sermon has got only one goal, And that is to win a hearing for this assertion that God has sovereignly tied the success of every dimension of the Great Commission, local and global, to the prayers of ordinary Christians. i say that again. God has chosen to tie the success of every dimension of his Great Commission, local to global, to the prayers of ordinary men and women. If you're convinced of that, then you'll come during this week. If not, you won't. But that's my goal. And I certainly don't trust in my ability to persuade you of that. I'm glad to see so many young people here as well. Because it was today in 1738 when a group of young men, including John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield, were praying. They were a little group called the Fetters Lane Society, ushering in the New Year. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit fell, and the first great evangelical awakening started as a result of that. So young men, young women who are here, university students, high school students, almost every great revival in this world has seen has been initiated by people at your level. So I'm so glad that you're here. Don't tune us or our, You are our hope for the future. So I'm so glad that you're here today. Anyway, as I said, but my trust is not in my own ability. My trust is in God's word. So I'm just going to be exposing you to scripture today. And as I unpack the scriptures, I've also chosen to illustrate them. From the widest ends of the gap, where the mission is the hardest, why do I do that? Because if that's how prayer works over there, it's going to be a no-brainer right here. So that's how I want you to see that as you listen to these. I've chosen the illustrations from the widest ends of the gap, where it is most difficult, and to see what God does in terms of answering prayer for his mission. So in a sense, you can say, hey, not that it's any easier. It's the same enemy, people's losses are the same, the obstacles are different, but the principle is what I want you to get a hold of, okay? That's where we're headed. I want to begin with Abraham. Everything in the Christian life and our life with God actually goes all the way back to Abraham and even further. He's the father of our faith. And some of you know the story when Abraham was uh, in the 12th chapter of Genesis. He was an idol worshipper in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And God called him and told him to go to a land that he would show him. And he made a covenant with him that he would bless him. He would bless, uh, he would bless him with descendants. And he will give him the nations of the world so that he will be a blessing to all nations of the world. Well, as the story continues, you end up in chapter 17, 25 years later, Abraham still has no children, doesn't own any piece of land at all. God appears to him once again and changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And in biblical thinking, names were associated with destinies and desires. They weren't just cute spellings for people who wanted their children's names to be different from somebody else's. They had a very real purpose for it. So his name was changed from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations, which must be really ironical because he didn't even have one child of his own at that time, at least not through his wife, Sarah. And then in the 18th chapter, all of this sets the stage for that. Abraham is sitting outside his desk, uh, outside his tent in the... Heat of the middle day of the Middle Eastern sun, trying to get some shade. When three people show up, he realizes later that one of them is God and two of them are angels. They're out to destroy the land of Sodom. And Abraham serves them a meal. In the course of that meal, he discovers who God really is. And in a typical Middle Eastern fashion, he's walking them out after the uh, dinner. When we read this, then the men set out from there and they look down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and that all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. So he's underlining Abraham's destiny to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And it says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said. And what follows after that, which we won't look at today, is the very first recorded prayer of the Bible. But the point that I want to make across you is that what was the Abraham's first expression of his new destiny? His destiny was to be blessed by God so he would be a blessing to the nations of the world. I like a massive mission. And Abraham did many things, but the first thing that Abraham did that the scriptures record for us as an outworking of his new destiny to bless the nations of the world was to pray. Prayer, and he prayed for Sodom. In this case, he prayed for God's mercy on Sodom because he had investment in Sodom. He had a nephew in Sodom. He had, earlier on in Genesis 14, you would read that he actually had a military campaign to rescue some of the people of Sodom. So Abraham had a lot of investment in Sodom. So he prayed for, that, for God's mercy on that nation. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the first expression of his new destiny was to pray. There are many, many things we need to do after we have prayed, but there's not much point doing anything until we have prayed. That is so foundational. So there's a lot ahead for you in 2024. There's a lot of hard work to do, but there's no point doing any of that unless we have first followed this of seeking his faith, its foundation. Now, of course, as you read the story of the Old Testament, you'll find that Abraham's descendants didn't do a very good job of it. Israel very quickly turned inward, lost their vision for the nations of the world. And, but God hadn't forgotten his plan. It was through a one unique descendant of Abraham named Jesus. That's why the New Testament opens with the word, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus' story, Jesus didn't appear in a historical vacuum. He came in fulfillment of the next step of God's promise to Abraham. And what does Jesus do? We know Jesus' ministry, but look what he did. Mark 1.35 says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And this was following a busy, busy day of ministry. The first 34 verses of Mark record all kinds of work that Jesus was doing, selecting disciples, casting out demons, healing people, if any day he could have slept in, it would be that first night. But while it was still dark early in the morning, he goes, because Jesus knew. He, did, he was the son of Abraham. He knew God, that's what I do. I do, I pray first. And if you read the life of Jesus, you will find that he prayed all the time. He prayed in the morning, he prayed at night, he prayed in the middle of the day, he prayed at the height of his popularity, he prayed on the cross. Before he selected the disciples, he prayed all night. In the shadow of the cross, Lord, should I pray that you will save me from this hour? No, for this, for this I came into this world. And John 17, the one long, the real Lord's Prayer is recorded for us. 26 verses where he pours out his heart to God. And he prays for us and he prays for his disciple as well. And of course, on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' own life and ministry exemplified this. You pray first. Prayer is foundational to mission. And of course he teaches the disciples the same thing. We had that passage read for us in John 15. Here are a few verses from that. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. A question I have begun to ask people regularly because God asked me of it very powerfully for the first time seven years ago was, have you ever felt the full force of nothing? What does nothing mean? A big fat zero, zilch, nada. That's what Jesus is saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. No preaching, no teaching, no mission of any kind, nothing. Do you believe it? If you did, you'd pray. If you don't, you won't. And then he goes on to say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And it was repeated later on in the same text, the fuller version of it that was read for you. This is not a promise of that God blunt promise that whatever you ask, Jesus is going to give you. It's all in the context of being chosen. He used the same words that God used about Abraham, and also in the context of a meal. He just finished having a, his last supper with him. He said, You didn't choose me, but I chose you to go out and bear fruit. So, in that context, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, and you will pray, I will do what you ask me. Exactly what he did with Abraham, what he did himself. He's communicating to the disciple of the foundational nature of prayer. So these, these, this is the general principle from Abraham to Jesus to the disciples to you and me. Now I want to actually take you through the specifics of look at the kinds of things that are tied to the prayers of God's people. As I said, I'm going to, I'm going to illustrate from the widest ends of the gap so that you can see if that's what God can do there, it's a no-brainer for here, right? That's my own goal, to build faith. First of all, Matthew 9, 9, 37, 38, Jesus himself said, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to his harvest field. By the way, in the entire Bible, this is the only recruitment strategy. There are lots of ways we can do to recruit people, whether children's ministries, which is a perennial need in every church, everywhere, all the time, because we know how important it is, and so the enemy opposes it. Or youth ministry workers for the downtown city or in the furthest ends of the gap. one of the most amazing illustrations I saw of this is a small church a group of people, I think it was in this Hamilton area, a Cambodian community that was actually praying for a pastor. They needed a pastor to come. And the way I heard the story, because this pastor ended up at Rexdale for many years, is a pastor showed up. But do you know how he showed up? He was thought he was going to Edmonton. Instead, he showed up at Hamilton because of a mistake. But he didn't know it. That mistake was God's way of sending this guy to this pastor. And this was the very pastor that this congregation had been praying for. That's what God can do. He can even give people wrong directions to get to certain places to get them where he wants to. So workers, a constant need of any kind anywhere. There are many things we can do after we prayed, but that's not much point doing anything until we have prayed that God, the Lord of the harvest, will send forth laborers. Then here's another one. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Now, if you only read that part of the words, you think, oh, and, and that word, uh, uh, struggle, it comes from the word agonizing, which is, was also used of the Olympic games in wrestling. So basically, Paul is inviting people to wrestle with him in prayer, which means it must be a very, very important need, right? When you talk about praying for a particular need that, that is called wrestling in prayer, boy, that must be so important. And it is, you know what it is? Pray that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul is gathering money from the Gentile churches to help the poor Jewish church back in Jerusalem, and he wasn't quite sure whether the Jewish church would accept money from the Gentiles. Jewish-Gentile unity was a huge issue, theological and practical, in the first century. It occupied a lot of people's attention and Paul's attention. In fact, some people argue very well that the entire book of Romans was written to promote Jewish-Gentile unity and for the inclusion of the Gentiles in in the kingdom. That tells me that unity is such an important thing to pray for. He he said, agonize together with me. We can't take unity for granted. The enemy's foundational strategy is to divide. And he divides through deception and through lies. He is a liar who plants seeds of discord in the body of Christ. We sang about the battle. That's his strategy. We need to be aware of that anywhere and everywhere. And especially show when it comes to people involved in mission, locally or globally. Many, many years ago, when I first started my ministry at Rexdale, Leadership Magazine had an article where they talked about the uh, alarming rate of uh, recidivism, the falling away from international workers. Something like 50% of them did not survive the first term. And in over 80% of those cases, the main reason why they left the mission field and came back home was because of a conflict with somebody else on their team. And usually someone that reminded them of a conflict with a family member back home. That's how important this is. So anywhere and everywhere a group of people are gathered together for mission, locally or globally. This is crucial. And the more difficult the task is, the more important this is going to be, because it's a difficult task usually calls forth what kind of laborers? Strong, people with conviction, people used to working independently, visionaries. That's all wonderful if they're the only person on the team. Put six visionaries together in a team, and you know what can happen, right? We desperately need prayer for unity in whatever your in, in, in mission is. And that's tied to God's prayer. It's tied to agonizing prayer. And if you're a leader, wise leaders like Paul should be mobilizing prayer. Paul knew what was important. Then here's another one. Ephesians six nineteen. Pray for me, says Paul, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, we're all amazed at the Apostle Paul. When we read in the Bible, we see this man, he writes so eloquently. I mean, just, just Romans alone. Um, he was a master of Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic culture. He knew the languages. He was skilled in rhetoric and logic. He was trained by Gamaliel. He could write rigorously argued theological treatises like Romans, and he could write passionate pleas like Galatians and Philippians. Or, or a plea to a Philemon to take a runaway slave back. Why did this man get this incredible ability with words? <laughs> and then, of course... When we think of the word fearlessly, we, we think of Paul's amazing fearlessness. He could rush into the face of the battle. He, people had to restrain him from going into dangerous crowds. And we say, man, isn't this guy amazing? But look, here's the secret though. <laughs> what is the secret behind the Apostle Paul's fearlessness? By the way, who, who, what kind of people ask people to pray that they will be fearless? Not fearless people. Fearful people pray that. Only fearful people want prayer, so they will be fearless, right? So Paul was not a fearless man, he was a fearful man. So this amazing man that we see, and we can hardly wait to see him in heaven, and that wouldn't be a bad idea. There was a secret behind him. You know who that secret was? We don't know. Unnamed men and women in the churches where the book of Ephesians was written took him seriously. They said, okay, Paul, we're going to pray for you that every time you open your mouth, words are going to be given to you. Who was behind the writing of Romans and Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians? Who? Who? The Holy Spirit. Who was behind the Holy Spirit coming upon the Apostle Paul? We'll never know. Ordinary men and women like you and me who are praying. That's how important this is. And this is true when your pastors stand up on this pulpit to preach. That words will be given to them. Over there and over here. Or a group of you go and visit somebody in a hospital. Words may be given to you. Or when you talk to your neighbor whom you invite over to your home for dinner that words will be, pray for exactly these things. By the way, one of the most amazing illustrations of this is a question. How many of you have heard the name of of a woman named Pearl Good? Her name ring a bell? I don't see any hand, but don't feel too bad. I've been asking this question for 30 years, (laughs) literally. And I've only found two people ever who put their hands up. Pearl Good was an elderly lady who lived in a small apartment in Pasadena, California. She was a woman of prayer. And at one point, God put a real burden on her heart to pray for a young up-and-coming evangelist. And so she would pray for him. Sometimes she would pray whole nights in prayer for him. Eventually, Pearl Good died. And for her her funeral service, the evangelist wasn't available, but the evangelist's wife came and represented him. And after she gave the tribute, She pointed to that casket where Pearl Good's body lay, and she said, therein lies the secret of much of Billy Graham's ministry. Who's heard of Billy Graham? Every hand up here, right? Spoken to probably over 100 million people in his life. Everybody's heard of Billy Graham. Nobody's heard of Pearl Good. I wonder who was behind those 100 million people. You see? You see? This is not just fanciful words here and there. This is how it works. This is how God has chosen to harness the prayers of ordinary men and women. Every single one of you sitting in this place, you are crucial to what is going to happen a week from now. And I hope it becomes a permanent part of your church's life, life it became a permanent part of ours. And then here's another one, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 11. We were under great pressure, this is Paul writing, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. So the, I call them the three Ds, depression, despair, and death. Out in the mission field is the hardest part where most of the remaining work is among very, very resistant people, groups, with very difficult languages to learn, with very hard climates. Depression is a possible, regular possibility. Despair, people lose hope. It's a constant struggle. And in some of those cases, death as well. And even much more locally so. The more you're involved in ministry, whether it's formal or informal as a layperson, you are in, working in enemy territory. And while you and I may not face death here, depression, despair may not be very far behind. You take the world seriously, especially what's going on in the world nowadays, it's not very hard to get depressed. You don't have to work very hard to throw up your hands and even in despair. And so Paul faced that all the time. Much more than anybody else ever did. You know, beaten 39 times, shipwrecked for three days in a row, often in hunger, knowing cold. You read that story, his list in Second Corinthians chapter 6, you wonder how this guy managed to survive one year. Here's the secret. Look what he says. On him we have set our hope on God that he will continue to deliver us. It all has God. And look at this. As you help us by your prayers. Now listen to me. If you really believed that God's servants, men and women, old and young, full-time or lay people, doesn't matter. Those are all earthly distinctions anyway. Here and there when they face depression, despair, and in many parts of the world, even of death. If you believe that your prayers are going to make a difference to those people's lives, you'd pray. (laughs) That's what Paul says. Yeah, God is the only one who can help us. But as you cooperate, this is an incredible call for you and me to cooperate together with the sovereign Lord of the universe to accomplish His work. What an incredible destiny for you and me. He doesn't need us. By the way, he doesn't need your week of prayer at all. Not as he need he never needed a single week of prayer from Rexdale ever. He frankly doesn't need you. He's a self-existent, self-sufficient, all-sufficient God. So if he calls you to do anything, it's for our benefit, not for his. That's why that section in John ends by saying, I'm saying all these things to you so that your joy will be full. This is an invitation not to, yeah, a week of prayer can feel like slogging in the trenches, because it is slogging in the trenches. But it's also for your joy. (laughs) But you'll find it in the trenches. (laughs) I remember a couple from our church. They went out to Pakistan. They were there for six years, and they did not have one single convert to report. Talk about depression and despair. But as it turned out, in the very first year that they were there, as soon as they moved into their first home, he, whom I knew well, he was an intern at Rexdale for two years, began to experience all kinds of despair, uh, depression. It was un- uncharacteristic. So our World Christian team at home, we just committed to praying daily for one month. Somebody or the other from our team praying every one month for this man. At the end of that month his depression lifted and he was never never in depression after that for those six years even though there wasn't much fruit. These things actually make a difference. Here's another one. New opportunities for proclamation. Colossians 4, chapter 3. And pray for us, says Paul, that God may open a door for a message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. I want to comment on both of those. Open doors. Only God can open doors. You read the book of Acts, you'll find that the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching the gospel in certain places. Can you imagine that? The Spirit of God stopping the preaching of the word. Because all those stops were part of getting Paul and and his team to Troas, where they would get the Macedonian vision and the gospel would get to Europe for the first time as a result of that. All the the closed doors were for the sake of the real open door that he wanted. Open doors take all kinds of forms today. Open doors for people who travel to other countries requires visas. Open doors requires Bibles to be able to get through customs without being seen. We had an international worker from our church who worked in, in Eastern Europe when Ceausescu was still there and Romania was still communist. She worked out of Eastern European seminary based in Vienna. And her trips into the country involved three different disguises at three different times. One disguise the first time entering the country dressed like a tourist. The second one to change from a tourist dress to a peasant dress because she was going up north to where the churches were and no tourist would normally go there. It would be very suspicious for someone to show, uh, an American, North American to be dressed well to show up in there. And then thirdly, when she would actually get into the churches themselves, they were somewhat legalistic in their background. They weren't allowed to use uh, earrings and lipstick and whatnot. She had to change a third time in there. Every one of these required guards in many places to go through. She had appointments, meeting people that she didn't even know where they would be, except she showed up at a particular place at a particular time. I mean, she needed open doors all over the place. So she had a team of intercessors, and she would give us an actual list of the exact times when the border crossings would take place. And there were people that prayed during those times for open doors. And we had some amazing stories that happened. One of the most remarkable ones was where she had to catch a train and that train was to stop at, a, at a, um, one, one track set removed from the platform. And she had to basically walk across there. But just before that, after the other train filled in, the one that she was supposed to catch, another train pulled in from here. And she didn't have enough time to go all the way around. And if she missed that connection, she'd be stranded in that country. Because she didn't even know who was going to be there at the other end to receive her. So she didn't know what to do. She said, it, And she felt a tap on her shoulder and there was big guy behind her said follow me and he picked up her two bags marched into the train, the door literally opened I mean two literal doors opened he marched through, the door to the other train opened and the bags were down, she turned around to say thank you and there was nobody there who was praying? <laughs> where did those angels come from? literal doors were being opened figurative doors had to be opened too, in some cases it's language We had another international worker from our church who had to learn a language. And in her first term, no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't get the language. If you don't have the language, you don't communicate. So when she came back home for her furlough, one of our elders' wives was an intercessor. She said, I'm gonna be every Wednesday, I'm gonna be in the church from nine o'clock to 11 o'clock in the morning, and we're gonna pray for her to learn the language on her next term. Whoever wants to pray with me, come. And so several people came, and throughout her entire term home, they prayed for her. When she went back, she got the language in the first year in no time at all. Open doors. Today here, you may not have to learn another language, but there are people from all kinds of languages, races, and customs that are coming to our country. They're all around the place from us. There are other other languages, nonverbal languages that you would have to learn. Other kinds of open doors that you will need. It's again a response to in prayer. And when we talk about the mystery of Christ, this is remarkable. What's so mysterious about the gospel? I mean, Jesus died for my sins, right? And I pray the sinner's prayer and Christ comes into my heart and I become a Christian. Why? It's so simple, which it is, my daughter gave her life to Christ when she was four years old and she never looked back. But my mother heard the gospel from me for 50 years and died without giving her life to Christ. And she would always say to me, I don't get it. I don't get it, I don't understand it. It was a mystery to her. We don't know, we don't understand. You know why it's so easy for us? Because it took a miracle. God commanded the light to shine in the darkness, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you and I prayed the sinner's prayer. It's so simple from our side and it is. It took all of the power of God to illuminate our hearts. And so what seems like a simple gospel to the lost, sometimes the people don't understand it, is not simple at all. And and that's true, by the way, when you're expounding scripture, when pastors are expounding scripture. It's the same kind of thing. The mystery of the gospel has to be unlocked. Redemptive analogs is what missiologists call one of the most remarkable illustrations of this is told by uh, Don Richardson in his book, The Peace Child. When he he was working amongst the Sawi people in the in the jungles of uh, Papua New Guinea, I think at that time, and when he got to the story, he was telling. He learned the language. He was telling them the story of Jesus and Judas. Everybody began to clap when he told them the story of Judas, because in that culture the highest value was betrayal. When you betrayed somebody else, they, they were a cannibalistic culture, and so when you treat someone from another tribe well, pretending that you're befriending them, you're actually literally fattening them up for a meal. And that whole process of deluding people, tricking them, was the highest value. Now, how do you preach the gospel in a culture where Judas is the hero and Jesus is the fool? Eh? You think it's a simple gospel? <laughs> no! You, I would not know what to do. You've got to read the whole book to find the story, but in, amazingly, he stumbled across a particular custom because these tribes were warring with each other all the time and he used to help them with medicines and what He said, look, if you don't stop fighting, I'm not going to give you these medicines anymore. They said, okay, okay, well, we, we've had a conversation, we've made peace. He said, but I don't believe you because your highest value you've just explained to me is treachery and trade. How do I know that you aren't setting me up? And they said, oh, no, we do have one other custom. And that is if the, if the, if the chieftain of one village gives his only son over to the village of the chief of the other village. As long as that peace child is living, we can never fight. Instantly, instantly, he had the gospel. He learned everything he could about the peace child, and within six months, he started preaching the gospel differently, and hundreds of them came to Christ. Talk about unlocking the mystery of the gospel. Today, maybe we don't deal with cannibalistic cultures right here next door. But the gospel is as mysterious to people from a different culture. Maybe even from the same culture living next door to you, they can't understand it. You, you, need, you need wisdom to unlock the mystery. How do I communicate the gospel to this person? The way you say it to A is not the same as the way you say it to B. Even read, even read Paul's lecture in the book of Acts. He preached one way in Acts 13, one way in Acts chapter 17, very, very differently to different people. That kind of wisdom comes. So, if you've got teams, for example, that are outreach teams, others of you may never be knocking on doors and building relationship, but you are desperately needed to pray that God will open the doors so they can preach the gospel and unlock the mystery of the gospel. It's tied to prayer. And then, for the rapid spreading of the message and its protection, finally, brothers, pray for us. By now, you're used to those three words, right? Pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. That's what I meant. I said every part of the mission is tied to the prayers of ordinary men and women. Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly for the rapid spreading of God's word and be honored just as was with you and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. Becoming more and more of a problem in our culture too. There's much more opposition to the gospel. Look at our kids in our school somewhere. So those are courageous enough to stand up The persecution that they're experiencing right in here. They need protection. This is coming home to roost and much more so overseas. And for the word of God to spread rapidly. And for the people to be protected. That is tied to the prayers of ordinary men and women. And then you're in for a real surprise. Because three verses later we read these words. But God is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, we, I wouldn't have expected that because after saying pray for us that we will be protected from evil men, I would have expected the next verse to read, and God is faithful and he will protect us. He didn't say that. He said God is faithful and he will protect you. In other, words, in other words, you and I who are doing the praying need as much protection as the people that we are praying for. What does that tell us about the importance of our prayers? means the enemy is out to get us as much as he's out to get the people out there. It's not just them who are in danger. He doesn't want anybody here praying along these lines. And so he's going to come after you and me as well. But he said, don't be afraid. <laughs> God will protect you. God will guard you. All of this just shows how high the stakes really are. There is a torpedo coming at us. You are actually in the driver's seat. You really need to make a decision what you're going to do. Run from this person or run straight at him because you have a commander who knows the battle and knows the weapons and knows the enemy and has given you a clear command that cuts right through all of those theological, philosophical and practical objections and confusion that are still very real there. And finally, and with that I'm finished. In 1 Timothy 2.1 he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, first of all, notice the priority, first of all, there'll be prayed and thanksgiving will be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead A peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And at first sight, this sounds like a very me-centered, selfish prayer. Oh, let's pray that everything will be nice and smooth and calm. But why didn't he do that? And I'm indebted to John Piper for this insight. He says, because one of the ways in which the enemy distracts us from the real battle is by focusing on all kinds of other battles. At any given time, there's something like 40 or 50 wars going on in this And and we know what's happening in the Middle East right now. And all those wars, whether there's little wars of conflicts that we talked about, or bigger issues, they all divert energy. The energy that is needed for this real battle that involves a lot of praying, praying takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of attention. And so he says, pray for peace, not just so that you can have a nice, comfortable life, but if your life is largely at peace and largely free from a drain of physical, emotional, and intellectual energy, you'll have all of that energy to give to prayer. That's the point. This peace is not just for our own well-being. It is so that prayers, prayers for peace need a big so that at the end of it. By all means, pray for blessing. By all means, pray for God's daily provision. But have a so that at the end of it, so that I will be free to be able to give myself, my energy away, and my intellect away, my emotions away in this kind of praying for God's mission, local and global. But put all of these together, see how many things are linked by divine command. New workers, unity between Christians, deliverance from death, depression and despair, bold and clear proclamation, new opportunities, rapid spreading and acceptance of the message and protection, and peace so that we have energy for the real battle. Every single one of these is linked to the prayers of ordinary men and ordinary women. And one wise man asked this question, why does prayer fail in the hands of so many Christians? And he said this, he called it a tragic substitution. He said, we have taken a wartime walkie-talkie that God gave us to stay in touch with command headquarters to receive marching orders for the battle, and we have turned it instead into a domestic intercom to make life more comfortable in the den. Can I say that again? Prayer fails maybe, because we have taken a wartime walkie-talkie that God has intended to use for us to stay in touch with command headquarters to receive marching orders for the battle, and instead we have changed it into a domestic intercom to make life more comfortable in the den for ourselves. We need to turn it on. It's not that we can't pray for daily needs. Give us this day. We sang the Lord's Prayer earlier on. He does say, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. It didn't start there. He started with, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then, in order that we may do that, give us this day our daily bread. Everything has to be in his proper place As you enter this week, can you imagine yourself? you getting ready. You've got seven days to make up your mind. <laughs> Jamie had actually asked me to come next Sunday, but I couldn't because I was committed. Actually, I think it's even better that you hear this, this week because you've got a week to think about these things. You've got a week to expose yourself to these scriptures, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. It's not just my word. You don't have to take my words. I could be right. I could be wrong. These are his scriptures. I've only tried my best to illustrate them to see how they actually work you say, okay, God, build faith within my heart. Faith comes by hearing the message of Christ." Imagine yourself. Imagine yourself, my brothers and sisters. And young people, you're never too young. There's no junior Holy Spirit, okay? There's no junior Holy Spirit. If you're 12 years old, the Holy Spirit can come upon you and, and let you pray. I had the privilege in some of these prayer meetings at Rexdale to pray next to a young drummer. He was only 17 or 16 years old at that time. I was just beautiful to see the passion in his heart. It, oh, her heart never, never too late. And even if you don't want to say anything, you just want to come and join the people and listen to them pray. Come, come, young people, come. Don't you're not excluded. You're actually the this is the main, you're the main target. You you are the future army of God. This is as much for you as for anybody else. So just imagine yourself in the driving seat. And you got all these voices, theological objections, philosophical objections, practical objections. That's why you can't, why you shouldn't, why you don't need to. And here, you've got a clear command from the commander-in-chief who knows you, who knows the enemy, and someone you trust already, and he's saying to you, get into that driver's seat, turn your submarines, point it straight at the torpedo, and go full steam ahead and watch what I do. Father, I pray that that is indeed what will happen. I want to bless this church. Thank you for everybody who chose to come here this morning to spend this day, the last day, it happens to be a Sunday of this whole year, worshipping you, Jesus, being led in a focus on who you are, listening to your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will so cause faith to well up within their hearts. Even now may desire spring up that says, I want to be part of this army. I believe you, Jesus, when you said that my joy will be full when I get into this battle. And I pray that the week from the 7th to the 12th will be a turning point in the life of this church. They'll never look back. In Jesus' name. Amen. Another one of the great joys of a pastor's heart is just bless the people. And I just want to bless you. And in the same section in Thessalonians from which we received those charges, I want to bless you. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the perseverance of Jesus Christ. The love of God will get you there and the perseverance of Christ will keep you there. May that be your experience. Go in Jesus' name.